listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my beautiful and lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Allison Brantley to talk about her new book, Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Coors and Remade American Consumer Activism. However, before I introduce her, I want to remind you that Skylit Books is fully open, so check out our guidelines online and come on by. We also are still have our... Um, online ordering available on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. So check that out as well. Allison Brantley is an assistant professor of history and director of honors and interdisciplinary initiatives at the University of Laverne. She currently lives in Los Angeles. And Allison, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Lance. It's really great to be here today. Thank you for coming on. Um, this It's so great to talk about my roots in Colorado, which I always love to talk about. It's so much fun. Um, you're from Colorado, right? Yeah, I grew up in Colorado, so I'm uh, also a transplant. <laughs> isn't it? I mean, the mount, the good old Rocky Mountains, right? It's always, you have to just love it out there. Yeah. Well, when I moved to LA, I thought there would be no mountains. So I was pleasantly surprised to be able to see them every day. <laughs> see, I moved, I lived in, I moved from uh, Denver to Florida so I was like moving out here I was like oh my god mountains again I love it I, lo- <laughs> I feel like I feel at home <laughs> um, so you have a reading for us today yeah so I'm gonna read from the first couple pages of the book which sort of nod to my Colorado roots and yes. and these pages offer a glimpse at why I got interested in the project in the first place mm-hmm. and it brings us into a story of a 40 plus year standoff between a beer company Coors Brewing mm-hmm. and boycotters. Ooh, I'm excited. Take it away. There's a well-worn tale of deception, secrecy and perhaps courage that my family has retold over the years. As the story goes, winter after winter in the 1960s, my mother's family would pile into a wood-paneled station wagon and head west from Iowa to Colorado for a ski vacation. On the return trip, my uncle schemed to hide cases of the local Coors beer, unobtainable in the Midwest, in the car. My mother, the youngest of six, whose seat was in the very back of the station wagon, became steward of the secret cargo, with her feet perched atop hidden cases of beer and knees jammed into her chin for the long ride. Upon their return to Iowa, my uncles would benevolently give the beer to friends, and my mother would keep their secret as best she could. My family was by no means unique in this regard. Coors beer, brewed exclusively in Colorado since 1873 and available in only a handful of states in the American West, reached cult status among many Americans in the 1960s and 1970s. 
The beer was difficult, if not impossible, to obtain in the Midwest and East. Its unavailability made it desirable, and its cold, crisp taste set it apart from other light brews. The Coors brand can lay claim to being the most chic brew in the country, wrote the New York Times Magazine's Grace Lichtenstein in 1975. Taking cues from the movie star Paul Newman and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, both of whom were rumored to have smuggled the beer east for their personal consumption, men and women went to great lengths to get their hands on Coors. Fraternities dispatched brothers to Colorado to get a few cases for parties. Tourists sought out the brew, eager to try it for themselves, and East Coast transplants in the West faithfully brought cases with them when they returned home for the holidays. Intrepid entrepreneurs made long drives to resell the beer for nearly $15 a case in locations from New Jersey to Washington, DC. Even the plot of the 1977 film, Smokey and the Bandit, involves secreting the beer out of the brewery's limited distribution market. As a result, commented Denver's Rocky Mountain News in 1975, Coors had, quote, become a status symbol comparable to owning a Shih Tzu instead of a poodle, a harpsichord instead of a piano, a wok instead of a skillet, end quote. Coors beer was cool, a status symbol, the coveted beer of celebrities and older brothers. For many years, this narrative of status and desire was the only one I knew in relation to Coors. The built landscape and historical imaginings of Colorado, my home state, also lend themselves to proud adoration of the Coors name, as the brewery has been one of the largest employers in the state for over a century, and the Coors family is among the wealthiest and most famous of local dynasties. Sporting events and venues bear the brewery's moniker, notably the home stadium of the Colorado Rockies, Coors Field. Over the past half century, the company's marketing campaigns, urging consumers to taste the high country or hold a can as cold as snow-capped mountains, have celebrated Colorado's rugged terrain and made the Coors name synonymous with the mythic frontier spirit of the state and region. Yet there is another, hold on, let me pause for a second. I'm... Yet there is another more contentious story that has been told about the brewery, the beer within, and the Coors family name. From the 1950s to the present, activists of many different stripes have rejected the Coors family and the company. For those who have worked or sought work at Coors or in its distribution network, the Coors name has been synonymous with union busting, discrimination, and conservatism. Folks on the left and in activist organizations, among them gay men, lesbians, union organizers, Chicanos, black women and men, feminists, student activists, and environmentalists have opposed the Coors family's right-wing politics and financial support for myriad conservative causes, from the Heritage Foundation to the presidential campaigns of Ronald Reagan. Acting upon their dislike for the Coors name and its associations, these men and women have actively and collectively boycotted Coors for decades. Instead of secretly transporting kegs of beer, boycotters have loudly protested, picketed, and organized against Coors and fought for their own rights. That, wow. <laughs> There's so much in there that I feel like makes sense and also surprising. Um, so I want to start off our conversation asking, like, you, you said a lot of this came, came, especially in these pages, um, from family, like your family telling these stories, how would, how did, the, how, like, would this come about with your family? So, um, in terms of my family being interested in Coors, I think 
in the 1970s, the beer, because it wasn't accessible to people who didn't live mm -hmm. in the West, um, be, because actually the beer was not pasteurized, it was cold filtered. And so the company right. only distributed within a certain radius to make sure that the beer stayed cold. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was this kind of mystique about the beer. Um, probably listeners kind of remember this, like Coors beer doesn't necessarily taste different from other light beers, but people really wanted to try it. And, right. and so for me, growing up in Colorado, where Coors beer was always available and oh, often yeah. in, in my fridge um, <laughs> because of my parents, I, I thought that, it, you know, I didn't know the story about the boycott. And certainly mm. it's not that it didn't exist or that it was a secret story, but because I think of this reverence of the company in beer, I was certainly surprised to learn when I went to graduate school that there had been a really long running boycott against Coors Beer and a long running coalition backed diverse movement trying to challenge the, the company and what it stood for. It seems not surprising that a company like Coors, I mean, like, especially in 2021, where there's companies like Chick-fil-A and uh, what's the other one? Uh, God, I all the corporations came in, like just left my head right now. Well, or the Goya boycott last summer, I think, is, right. is another example. Yeah. Uh, Publix in Florida. Um, there's like these corporations. People are like, "Oh, I use them all. I love them, but now I'm finding out that they're more conservative in nature than I find out." But like, Coors is so central to Colorado. It's like a Colorado institution, like. You think of like Coors Field and going on the Coors Tour and there's Coors, Coors exists, Coors exists everywhere. Coors is such a weird word for me to be like repeating so much. Um, like for the Denver community, how do you think that resonates the conservatism of Coors or the Colorado community? That's what I wanted to say, sorry. Yeah, well, I think so. This is definitely a Colorado story, but um, mm -hmm. as I tell the history of the boycott, the movement and activism kind of ripples outward from Colorado. Um, mm. So it, it begins in the state of Colorado, but it becomes something much bigger. Um, for folks in Colorado, when the boycott began, which I date to 1957, based mm. upon my archival research, their, their first reason for opposing the company was actually not really about their conservatism, but because of their belief that the company was anti-union and then in the 1960s, radical Mexican-Americans or Chicanos and Chicanas in Colorado and the Southwest used the boycott to protest what they saw as discriminatory labor practices. Um, and then LGBTQ activists in California, for example, joined the movement out of opposition to rumors that the company was using lie detector tests that were meant to maybe root out queer people from the workplace. So at first this was a very Colorado-based labor dispute. It was a big company, a company that employs a lot of people in Colorado and has a really storied history. I mean, it had been around since the late 19th century. Mm. And for a lot of Coloradans, especially Coloradans associated with the labor movement and in communities of color, they saw the company as emblematic of some problematic labor practices in the state. Mm. Um, more generally. But the opposition to Coors eventually does extend to this political opposition, and that's how the boycott takes off outside of Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, so it becomes something that for people in the West who really know the brand, um, they're able to boycott and use that boycott as sort of a political statement. 
And then eventually as Coors extends its distribution to New York or Boston in the 1980s, the boycott follows. So I think what you're saying earlier about companies that like Chick-fil-A or Goya, if you're a person who's progressive and you feel really strongly about your activism, we understand our consumption or consumerism to be political. And so it makes sense to withhold our money from a company that we believe is not acting in the way that we would want them to. Um, and one of the arguments I make in this book is that over time, people who boycotted Coors began to see their boycott in that kind of political way. And they used really political language to describe, describe what they were doing. And I mean, yeah, in the sense of like what we consume is political and like in terms of like in consume not, I mean, this could just be taken literally and we're consuming this beer physically, but like consume in the sense of like anything we consume, media, um, media, literature, books, that's a, that's a book reference for all my book pods out there. Um, uh, other things I think I'm we consume music um that's something we consume all of this we um is political and i feel like chorus is definitely like something that you think of as how is that political it's a beer that everyone enjoys right it's a beer that like even before i knew that it was like a such a colorado establishment i knew of course um and it didn't it wouldn't cross your mind but like how do you think that that plays out now in this more woke and I know I'm using quotation marks when I say this woke but like woke uh culture we're living in where people are now more aware of like the political natures of everything we're living in every thing yeah we're experienced mm -hmm. yeah that's a really great point and a, a really good question I think one thing that I kind of want to clarify for uh listeners is that the reason why Coors ends up being seen is it in this political way is because the family behind the beer in the 1970s becomes more and more overtly involved in the national conservative movement. Um, you know, I, I said in the excerpts there, supporting Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. Joseph Coors, one of the key uh, executives of the company. He, he goes by Joe, so I'll, I'll refer to him as Joe. Mm -hmm. He was funneling money into conservative think tanks. He tried to found an alternative TV station to oppose liberal media. So that gets back to your, your media question. Mm -hmm. and. So for a lot of people in the 1970s and 1980s who are seeing like this slow kind of move towards the right in American politics, Coors mm. is a symbol of that. And so if you want to oppose that politics, I, you can boycott, right? So they see a kind of link there between those two things. And one of the interesting things I found in my research is that increasingly Companies and business leaders like Coors have more and more say over politics, right? They're more involved in politics. They're giving more money to lobbyists. Mm -hmm. and, and so they're very much entrenched in the political system and consumers and activists see that. And so they kind of use it to their advantage to oppose political systems or political ideas. So they're kind of taking advantage of this fact that businesses are more engaged in politics. Mm -hmm. And I think for this, this moment in which we're all seeking different ways to be active yeah and there's sort of this woke culture boycotts are a really good example of a way to oppose a certain set of politics and to clarify for yourself you know how do you want your money to be spent um, what kind of culture and society do you want to be contributing to because 
your money does make a difference. I mean, yeah, maybe it's only a $5 beer or whatever, or a $2 chicken sandwich. I don't even know how much they are actually. Couldn't tell you. Um, Couldn't tell okay. you. I, I'm not like up to date on the cost of some of these things. Uh, <laughs> but that can make a difference through collective action and also a feeling that what you're doing with your life and your sort of daily practices has political mm. meaning and implications. And I argue in the book that Coors Boycotters kind of set this standard for us because they, they kept at it for so long, for 40 years or more, some of them keep boycotting Coors. And so they gave us an example of a way that you can oppose a company for specific practices, but then also use a boycott to articulate a different vision of politics and culture. And one thing I want to say, when you were describing how the family does like spend their money and trying to get involved nationally by doing, I, and it might just because I watched the trailer for the new season of it, it was, gave me succession vibes where I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's this very rich family that's like embedded in this culture in this way. I'm like, now I want a series, the Coors family, or I want the Coors family to be the next uh, family to come in the new season of succession is what I'm saying. And now I'm want to talk about succession, but we won't do that right now, at least. Um, no, but it's true. It's like, and you th you don't you wouldn't think of the chorus family getting in on that like. It it seems insidious in a way, and not like and not even like the evil insidious, but insidious in the sense of like, oh, this is this family that has so much power, and you wouldn't think of them like. Uh, being so involved in so many different avenues and like but yeah it's like they are they they have a they have their own mission that they're going on there they have their own uh, personal motivations that they're going on in there in a way they're using this brand this course which is kind of at some point goes beyond them right mm -hmm. and it like becomes this thing that like it's their name but it's also something bigger that they can use as a vehicle to really go you to to use their own personal gain from um is there when you were researching this did you see any other um do you see any other similarities in like other businesses or organizations where you're like whoa this is exactly like the way i saw succession in this do you see anything <laughs> else like that well i think the really interesting thing about the Coors family and their company is that their kind of defining moment in their politics is prohibition in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Well, actually in Colorado, it starts in the 19 teens. And they see this as like the ultimate overreach of the federal government getting involved in their business. So they're mm -hmm. really, um, you know, strongly interested in protecting the free market. And so prohibition happens and really for the next couple generations, they don't want to see that kind of federal overreach. And so at first, mm -hmm. uh, the family itself is pretty quiet about their politics, even though they're very influential in Colorado. And then in the 1970s, Joe Coors in particular decides, like many other business people, that they should be more involved in politics to protect their businesses, to defend against communists or you know whatever other threats to the American state. And what is interesting to me is that other family-owned businesses and breweries like, say, Anheuser-Busch um, have the same kind of politics and political perspectives because prohibition is really defining for the industry of beer, uh, but they're never really 
open and as sort of public in, in how they're doing this and mm. opponents never really seize upon the name. So yeah, as you're saying, the, the Coors family kind of builds a brand for itself that's centered around their name and the red sort of looping cursive on, on the can. But activists do basically the same thing and they use Coors to be a symbol of everything that they oppose. Mm. Uh, so there's kind of this standoff over meaning of the name and, it, and for most boycotters they don't really care about the beer inside the can right to be honest like it's you know the boycott's not really about the beer sometimes they make it a little bit about the taste or, or whatever but for them it's more about the political implications right um and just to your, to your question also i would say uh, another kind of good example of a family's pursuing um, a political agenda in their philanthropy and in their business is I think the best comparison for us today is the Koch brothers. Mm. Um, but you know, the difference there is the Koch brothers don't attach their name to everything they do, whereas for a long time the Coors family did, although mm -hmm. by the 1980s they started marketing different products that would divorce their brand from their name. So like Zima Clear Malt Beverage, people remember that in the 1990s. That was wow. a Coors product, Blue Moon is a course oh. product. So, um, you wow. know, their, their PR people have done a pretty effective job at kind of separating mm -hmm. that symbolism of the company and the name from the, the product that they're trying to sell. And even that seems kind of like shady a little bit where you're like, oh, they, that's them, <laughs> Blue Moon. I know Blue Moon, that's, <laughs> that's Coors. Um, yeah, Boycotters no, had all kinds of, um, flyers and stuff they'd be like don't be fooled uh zima or like all these other products are just coors hiding behind another name um so this was always kind of fueling actually boycotters who saw all of these steps by the company as really disingenuous mm -hmm. i mean they're right they're kind of right it seems like uh very 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 sneaky tactics very um what's the word i'm looking for like covert so I'm thinking spy terms at this point because mm -hmm. I feel like it's corporate espionage, espionage. It's like, ooh, they have like investigators and like uh, backdoor deals. I, I, but that's maybe more of the, my Hollywooding, what is probably just like boring. Or succession, yeah. Yeah, succession. Well, yeah. And they also, yeah, they have, um, it's also like, I think an example of corporate intelligence that mm -hmm. uh, by the, 1980s and 1990s one like the company has a really skilled set of PR people that they've hired mm -hmm. to, to basically um, push the boycott to the side and this is a period where companies generally are trying to embrace this thing called corporate social responsibility and to say they're good citizens and they're giving money back to communities and I think Coors is poised to really um, embody a lot of those trends because of the pressure mm -hmm. they've been facing from the boycott. So they've put hundreds of millions of dollars back into communities of color, for example, mm -hmm. to basically, you know, as boycotters would say, buy off boycotters, the company would say, well, this is just an example of our goodwill towards communities. Like, why are you boycotting us? Look at all the good we are doing. Well, also, it seems like a tactic to split up the boycotters too, because if they help Absolutely. one, Mm -hmm. then kind of like the dominoes fall in that kind of way interesting and like mm -hmm. um yeah and very interesting uh 
how, when you were writing this, did your own politics come into play? Because I feel like when you're like, even me talking or discussing this with you now, I'm like my own personal politics, I feel like I have to put them aside to talk about this. Cause I could, I want, like, I would want in reading this to like come off very, uh, what's the word, objective versus subjective there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I can I can only imagine how writing this, it would come in, it would be like hard to find that subjective or objectivity versus subjectivity. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, when I came to this project, I, when I was in graduate school, mm -hmm. I was involved in uh, some labor organizing and political organizing and that mm -hmm. attracted me to this story actually, even beyond sort of just being surprised by it because I was, sort of shocked to see that a boycott could have lasted for multiple decades. It was so, mm -hmm. it's actually so rare right. in American consumer politics. Um, the thing is that there have been a lot of things written about the Coors Company that are essentially hit pieces. And mm -hmm. as a historian, that was not my intent. My objective here was to tell the story of organizers, like what's happening on the ground how are grassroots organizers coming together to build coalitions? In the early 1970s, LGBTQ activists and labor activists come together to build this amazing and kind of unlikely coalition. And, and so my interest was, the, I went in with a question, like how did they organize it? What was it like? How did they sustain it? And I used archival sources and some oral history interviews to be able to answer that question as objectively as possible. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think sort of as a historian, that is my goal is to tell an objective story. But I, I think even in the way that I decided to look at this from the perspective of organizers, certainly that is a, a subjective kind of take, but I don't see the text as a subjective kind of politicized hit piece like others yeah. have written on this, this same topic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is, yeah, sort of subjective, uh, subjectivity because the subject is the protesters, but in in your in trying to find the objectivity in the subject, I am ooh, I am killing it with these words, yeah. right? Um, did you find anything to like that grounded you in Coors's mission in the Coors mission there on their side of the protests and the uh, boycotting? Yeah, so I, I mean, I told the story from the perspective of organizers and mm -hmm. as a historian of social movements, that was the, the focus that I had. The Coors Company's archives remain close to researchers. Mm -hmm. And so that, that posed an obstacle, but so many organizers kept records of correspondence uh, from the company. So I had some idea of how they were engaging with each other newspaper articles from Denver um, covered these conflicts really extensively and, and were always, um, you know, journalistically, they had a journalistic integrity. And so they were always getting quotes from the company and from organizers. So I used that to, to understand what the company was doing. Um, but because my focus was on organizers themselves, in part because I think not a lot of people have told the story of how these boycotters built what they did. Mm -hmm. um, most of the, the story is kind of told from that perspective. And there are there is another book that if people are really interested in the Coors family, uh, there's another book that maybe would be a good companion to mine. Um, it's called Citizen Coors. And that really tells 
the, the story of the company as it developed through, through the eyes of the family. And so I actually use that a lot to, to try to understand like, mm-hmm. how were they seeing what was happening um, while also elevating the voices of people from the archives, um, people who are just kind of out there like picketing or mm-hmm. putting bumper stickers on their cars. And like that, I mean, in the secret, like that's interesting that they keep those archives closed. Do you have a lot any of guesses? Businesses do, a lot of businesses do that. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's not that uncommon. And in the end, I, I, there was so much archival material on the boycotters that was kind of scattered across the country that mm. trying to understand what was happening there and reading those archives and spending time with them became the, the priority for me in telling the story. Was there anything in sifting through all of this information from like uh, news sources and like uh, documentation from the boycotters that surprised you that like something that you couldn't have seen coming if you guessed? Yeah, so much of this was a story of surprises. When I first began this research, um, I thought that this would be just a story of a boycott that lasted a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the boycott has been written about in a number of different capacities, most extensively by uh, historians of the Chicano experience in America. They've kind of covered the conflict between Chicanos and, and Coors. And I thought, well, I want to know more. So I went home to Boulder and did some research and found the organize, organizational records of the union that had been at Coors. And so that was really surprising to me. And suddenly I was like, it was like pulling a thread, you know, it was, there was just this bigger story that kept kind of unraveling. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a lot surprising there, but actually one of the most surprising things for me, since um, we're talking, we're both in LA and uh, mm-hmm. I know a lot of listeners are in LA is that even though the story begins in Colorado, a lot of its significant developments took place here in Southern California. Wow. Um, In particular, Los Angeles was a pretty key stronghold for the boycott in the late 70s and 1980s. Many labor unions, Chicano, Mexican-American organizations, and LGBTQ organizations were supportive of the boycott and did some pretty creative things to promote it. Uh, For example, the Teamsters Union hired planes to to fly anti-Coors messages up and down the beaches in the 80s over the summer, and they did a flyover of the Rose Bowl, I think on New Year's Eve. Uh, a group of LGBTQ organizers, uh, they were working to send a message to President Reagan to ask him to cut ties with Joe Coors, and they collected enough signatures at a pride uh, celebration to try to win the Guinness World Record for longest telegram. Oh my God. Um, and in the same period, a bunch of Coors activists, so the, coming from these different kind of coalitional groups and communities, mm-hmm. protested the Western Championships of. Um, a menudo cook-off, uh, which was at Whittier Narrows Park. Um, and th- this featured like a special mass said by Father Luis Olivares, who was a key figure in the sanctuary movement. Mm-hmm. And they're like all these activists from really different backgrounds together, like holding anti-Coors balloons at this menudo um, cook-off championship. And so it's really changed the way I see LA. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first moved to LA, I didn't really think this the boycott story would would be like very big here. And as I traverse the landscape, I see a lot of the Coors boycott and this diverse history of activism here. That's so, I mean, uh, I wanna say I'm fully surprised, but that also (laughs) sounds like LA to like get involved in this. They're like, see like something to get involved in and be like, yeah, we're in, we're on board. But like, it's so cool how they like, 
I feel like you see that in a lot of boycott stories, the interesting and creative ways that they see it. And like, there is a creativity to boycotting because you have to kind of, mm -hmm. especially from the non-corporation side of the boycott, because like, you have to scam. <laughs> I feel like you have to scam a lot in like a, in like a, in like a good way. Like there, like you said, they're at a Menudo cook-off. Like that's, that seems like them trying to like, you know, scam their way into like using their platform for good using this platform for like really good stuff scam might not be the right word hustle hustle is yeah. a better word that's a really so um i think that you're right to boycott you have to be really creative and you have to hustle just as equally as a the, a, a company that's smart right by the 1980s yeah. coors was smart they knew if we sponsor menudo cook-off maybe we'll win back some latinx boycotters right mm -hmm. and they, you know, put a lot of money back into the community. Um, so boycotters, like the minute they heard an event would be going on, mm -hmm. they would, you know, rally their supporters and their allies and they'd show up at random places with bumper stickers and signs. And um, I'm just thinking of this funny quote, one organizer in the boycott, his name is Dave Sickler. He grew up in Colorado, but then he actually moved to LA to organize the boycott. And he said, you know, if you can get two cockroaches to race, Coors will show up with t-shirts and sponsor it. <laughs> and um, you might as well say also, and boycotters would be there even at a race of two cockroaches. Like it was just that intense. Every possible opportunity for either side to try to kind of reset the narrative, uh, the other side would be there in some way. That's so cool, but like also so powerful like you the the power of pro the power of boycotting um is just so fervent and how like what is it like now today in 2021 yeah that's the year we're in um uh forgot for a second i was like we're in 20 it's still 2020 right yeah. no, no, nothing that happened Long this past year happened right 20 it's still it's february 2020 for me forever um how how is in 2021 uh like the either repercussions or just the ripple effect of what happened there, like still prevalent in either the chorus company, like what's the chorus company like today in uh, response to this? So there's not much of an organized movement, there's not an organized movement to boycott Coors at this moment. There are a lot mm. of people who still boycott. Um, and every once in a while I'll hear like old boycott narratives kind of circulating in popular culture. The company itself, um, since the 1990s, uh, the family has not been in executive positions, although they've remained majority shareholders. And um, over the past couple of decades, Coors has been bought. Um, so now it's Miller Coors, which is owned by Molson Coors. So there's this mass consolidation globally of beer uh, companies in the industry. And so Coors has kind of fallen under um, you know, this sort of umbrella kind of like almost monopoly um, of these massive companies. Um, the family does remain active in Colorado politics. Uh, a number of years ago, Pete Coors, uh, Joe Coors' son ran for Senate in Colorado. Wow. And there was, there was some, there's some evidence that the Coors family did donate to Trump affiliated um, organizations in the 2016 election. Uh, so there's still some of the same kinds of um, 
maybe things going on with the way that the family sees their political um, priorities and the way they spend their own money. Mm -hmm. uh, but the company now is really quite separated from the family, um, in part because of the legacy of this boycott that they saw the need to separate the brands in some way mm -hmm. in order to win back the goodwill of many consumers. Is there still a sort of, not with the family per se, but the Coors brand, a conservatism vibe from them or actions? I would say the Coors fan or the Coors company, excuse me, has really embraced kind of a progressive uh, brand. Wow. I think, and, and a lot of boycotters argue this, that this is in response to longstanding pressure from progressive activists to get the company mm -hmm. to, you know, actually respond to well, their demands or their, their right. needs or their concerns. So um, in the 1990s, Colorado passed uh, an amendment to the state constitution that was basically banning um, same-sex marriage and the mm -hmm. company came out against it uh, oh, wow. pretty prominently. Um, but there's something recently that I saw that, you know, the company has, I think now they're selling Coors Seltzer and for every seltzer yeah. they, they sell, they're, you know, it's guaranteeing um, fresh water, clean water in Colorado. And so I think that they've been able to really rebrand themselves mm -hmm. as the socially responsible company that is kind of um, hip and can market to lots of different consumers. And I think that's a response to the boycott. I also think it just kind of demonstrates the way that the brewing industry has changed. They have to appeal to consumers who are really interested in craft beer and yeah. they don't necessarily want to drink a beer like Coors. So Coors has to market itself in innovative ways in the same way that you know Miller or Anheuser-Busch have to do right I mean like all of them like Bud Light Miller Coors they I feel like they I walked in the grocery store the other day and I was like they all have seltzers now what is this like this is the seltzer boom 2021 <laughs> yeah. listen I am a seltzer I currently am drinking and they're not a brand yet that we are sponsored by yet but I'm drinking LaCroix because I was, I mean, I've been on the seltzer train. So I'm kind of like, I'm glad. Look at us, LaCroix. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Cheers to us. Cheers. Um, no, there's, uh, there is a seltzer room. So, I mean, I'm not surprised Coors is getting, actually, I'm a little surprised Coors is getting in on that there. But yeah, I mean, in Colorado, especially, there was a huge craft brewery boom there. And I don't, it's not new, but it's like, it's, it's only getting bigger. So yeah, you would see, you would think like Coors is trying to, cause that crowd is usually like liberal, mostly um, liberal and wanting to be progressive and doing this. So they probably did, they they probably did have a lot of pressure you know, going into this. So, mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that they're, this progressiveness is something that will continue or are we just having to like, gonna wait and see kind of thing. Wow, Lance, that's a good question. I'm not sure. As a historian, I'm not good at making predictions. Um, <laughs> I, I think probably it's something that will stay because the company has really successfully rebranded itself from mm -hmm. decade from a number of decades in the late 20th century where they were seen as, gosh, so many times boycotters would just say, Coors is the beer of the far right. Um, or, you know, Coors is the beer of um, anti-unionists or whatever. Right. Uh, so the fact that they've been able to really move away from that association, I think demonstrates 
for me, having looked at the historical record, the success of boycotters, but also the success of the people at the company who are, you know, daily thinking about its marketing. So I would think we'd see the same thing continue um, because it seems to have been quite successful for them over mm -hmm. the past few decades. That, I mean, yeah, I, I would hope that they would do that too, just because, you know, I, even though I have my own personal beliefs on corporations, I have to hope that one day they'll be better, they'll do better for the people that they're um, providing like these things too. So mm -hmm. I just, I cross fingers on that. Maybe one yeah. day that we'll have a better future of corporations, of socially well, think, responsible and progressive right. corporations. I think that it goes to show this history of the boycott, which, you know, it's 40, 50 plus years, um, depending on how you, you look at it, the boycott um, wasn't fully successful. They met a lot of failures along the way, but it, this story I think demonstrates that many institutions in the United States, especially corporations don't change on their own. They change because of sustained pressure from uh, grassroots activists and organizers who are willing to take risks, to be creative in a boycott or to join in coalition with a group that maybe they never had thought about working with before. And through that sustained pressure, you can get a corporation to respond because of, you know, it's about their profits and their bottom line. Um, I think that some corporate leaders, doesn't matter what company would say, oh, we only change because of our own volition. Mm -hmm. uh, but this story in particular and other stories of consumer boycotts in the late 20th century, like the United Farm Workers boycott, demonstrate that this kind of organizing can produce a result. That, yeah, what a great answer. I think that you, use that was a fantastic answer for that. Um, the last thing I want to ask you um, before we have to wrap up, sadly, um, what, it's, it's a two-part question <laughs> and I'm, let me phrase it. Let me let me make sure I'm phrasing correctly. How would you like the Coors Corporation to see your book, like see this history book? Ver, ver, and also, how do you think that they'll like receive it? Do you think that's going to be like something they would see and be like, okay, this is our history. This is what we did. And maybe we'll use that as a starting point to grow. Or will they be like, nah, not this. This is, this is hurting, going to hurt us. I think that for a long time, the the boycott itself, as it continued to develop, was a sore point for the company. They mm -hmm. uh, at first they didn't understand why they were being boycotted, or they kind of rejected the premise of the boycott. Um, but over time, they recognized that the boycott was there, that people took issue with various policies and politics um, that they were engaged in, and. Maybe they don't love um, the, the history of it being out right. there, but I think that they respect the history. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is a, a work that's based on archival research, mm -hmm. um, trying to tell a story of organizers who, um, you know, I don't want their voices to be silenced, even if their movement was maybe not all that successful. Um, mm -hmm. So my hope is that anyone who reads it, regardless of whether it's um, somebody with Coors or you know somebody who's an activist or has a, a progressive lean, um, mm -hmm. is that they'll read it as a, 
an objective and um, deeply researched historical account of one movement that developed over a long period of time and really touched the lives of many people. Uh, and, and can offer an example of how boycotts can work and also offers an example of some of the problems in boycott organizing that people should keep in mind if they really wanna organize one. And yeah, I mean, if you were, and I did say that was the last one, but I have a, this is a tiny question. If you were to like advise the Coors Corporation um, on how they should respond to this, do you think that you would say, you would tell them to like accept this history, accept like what happened to them and, you know, grow from it, uh, beef upfront about this history? So I've, um... A couple years ago, I did the brewery tour at Coors, um, yeah. which you can still do for free. I think and so, yeah. a lot of it is really about the history of the company, right? They want to show off, mm -hmm. a, a, demonstrate a certain history that is like immigrants building themselves up by their bootstraps to, to mm -hmm. build a, a huge and massively successful brewery. Um, I The boycott is part of their history as well. It right. highlights um, struggles over the beer, the meaning of beer in politics. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an uncomfortable part of the company's history to be sure. Um, and there are many employees who, you know, never bought into the boycott, right? And I think feel mm -hmm. um, maybe sensitive about it or feel some opposition to it, but it's part of kind of the richness of that corporate history, the state's history and the history of activism um, in mm -hmm. Colorado and more broadly. Good answer. That was a great answer. No, I I hope Coors is listening right now and taking some advice. And who knows, in a year he might be there uh, marketing. And his. I wonder if Coors has a historian like on board to like document their history. That'd I'm be sure they, yeah, I'm sure they do. Interesting. I wonder what that like job entails. Like, do you go in there and say, hey guys, this is what happened. I don't know how this, how, I don't know we should probably talk about it. We should probably do some, that's probably in their like marketing team, right? Um, I think they do have uh, archivists and historians. I know that the Miller Coors has an archivist. So they, you know, keep track of, of business records and mm -hmm. it's kind of up to them when they want to release it because it's privately held um, right. archives. Right. Yeah. No, that seems like a very interesting, you know what, that's, that should be, you know, I feel like there's an investigative side of me that wants to like sneak in now and be like, tell me the truth. What's what what's <laughs> hidden? What do we not know? Um, no, Allison, this has been fantastic to talk to you about this. Yeah. And I'm excited for what's coming in the future for you. Like what's next? Who, which company are you bringing down next? Let's tear <laughs> it all down. No, um, no, it's 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 interesting to see like the this big company that like I feel like even if you're not, even if you don't drink it, or if you don't like, you're not regularly like involved with it, you know, of course, course has been in your life one way or another. So it's interesting to see this company talked about like this, honestly, and in such this way. Um, and also see these groups of people that like, you wouldn't think would come together, come together in this way. It's when I, um, first saw this book I was like is this the Avengers is this like the Avengers we need they're coming together I want I want like I, I, whoever started it to be like hey we have an initiative for like going to like to see different like boycotting groups and be like we have an we have an initiative for you and they all gather together to take down 
colors. So concussion um, versus Avengers mashup. Oh my you have God. No Don't <laughs> tease me with a good time. I'm ready. <laughs> um, no, this is this has been fun. Um, before we go, do you have any last words you would like to say to the independent bookstore or even or the Skylight community, all of them together? Well, first, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Lance, for having me. Um, you know, it's been a really tough year and now we're like kind of coming out of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, but one thing that really kept me going on a personal level was like all of the creative content and programming of independent bookstores like Skylight. I'm really thankful for these virtual spaces, but I have to say, like, I'm really excited to get back into bookstores and smell yeah. that fresh book smell. Fresh, again. fresh book. <laughs> there's nothing like, I was telling someone the other day, there's nothing like the crack of a spine of a book or the, I was, um, we just had like a bunch of pay, uh, hardcover books came out in paperback recently. And I was like, oh my God, there. I was just like looking at all the covers and all this stuff. And I'm just like, we're back, we're back. We're doing it again. <laughs> so no, it's, 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 it's exciting. It's an exciting time. And thank you for being a part of this. Um, the Allison's book, um, Brewing a Boycott is now available now on sale at skylight books and you'll see it on our skylight podcast display at the front of the store so go grab a copy learn about this learn about boycotting and start boycotting places that need to be boycotted i don't know i feel like i feel like boycotted culture needs to come back in a strong way so yeah. read allison's book and study up <laughs> um no but thank you again allison and thank you to the wonderful listeners who come back every time i love you i love you all and i hope you have a wonderful and beautiful rest of your day thank you thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.